All right, well, last week we talked about what spiritually powerful preaching is. Uh, That is the difference between a preacher who comes up and does a good job, and you say, good job, pastor, you did a good job, and a moment when the Spirit arrives, works powerfully through that preacher, and works powerfully in the hearts of the people there. Uh, We talked about the marks of what the fear of God looks like on a preacher. What does it look like when a man stands in the pulpit and just trembles before God as he gives the word that God God has written here. Uh, what does it look like when a sermon is focused on the cross of Jesus Christ and not with an effort to impress the people with the preacher and things like this that we do to try to usher in the Spirit's power into our preaching? And today we want to ask a question related to that, and that is why do we need that? Why is it not enough? For a preacher to get into the pulpit and do a good job. Why do we need the Spirit of God to show up in our worship services? And for that matter, of all things, why preaching? There are many churches, some churches, that are choosing to do away with the preaching part because the kids like the music and the singing better anyway, so let's do some more of that and maybe watch a video or do something else. Do we really need this preaching thing? And we're going to look to the scriptures for answers on that question. Why do churches thrive on spiritually powerful preaching and why not something else? Now to lay the context here, I want to start where we ended last week. One of the things I shared with you last week was that the, the modern church has more resources available to it than probably any other time in the history of the church, particularly the modern church here in America. Uh, What I mean is that if you want a good ministerial training, you don't even have to leave your hometown. You can get a better education online through some of our seminaries right now that are thriving than you could by moving somewhere 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. We have all the resources we need to just mint out as many faithful preachers as we would like to. Uh, We also have a stronger ability to proclaim and get this message out through internet technologies and social media. And never has the other side of the world been closer in our reach than it is right now. Our biggest churches have bigger budgets and more technology available to them than churches have ever had in human history. If you were to just look at the resources available to us, you would think that this would be the golden age of church growth. But what's happening instead? A quarter of all American church attenders have left the church in the last four years. So what's going on? We've got more available to us than we've ever had before, and we're seeing one of the steepest declines in church history. Why is that? Because all of that stuff is not enough. We need the power of the Spirit of God in the preaching of the Word to grow the church, to see the church grow, and to see people come to Christ Jesus. So today we're asking, well, why did the Lord arrange it that way, of all the ways that he could have done it? Why is so much riding on the power of the Spirit of God in preaching? We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 2. I'm going to start at verse 6, and we'll go all the way to verse 16. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 
None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths for those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. These are the words of the Lord, and through them, the Spirit reminds his church of our urgent need for spiritually powerful preaching week after week. So the question today is, why do we need preaching that has supernatural power on our Sunday services everywhere? And we can really divide that into two questions. Why preaching? Why not something else? And why does it need to be spiritually powerful preaching? Why can't just a good old sermon do the trick? So we'll divide that into, let me answer first the question, why is it preaching that is the need of this hour and the need of every hour until the Lord returns? We'll give you two reasons for that from this text. The first, because the gospel cannot be discovered by men, it must be revealed by God. The gospel cannot be discovered by men. It must be revealed by God. We see this in many places in the text. I'll point out first just four of them, verses 7, 9, 10, and 16. Verse 7 says very plainly, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, if you've been here for a while and you've heard us walking through this book, you know when he talks about the wisdom of God like this, he's talking about God's message, the gospel message, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the pinnacle of God's wisdom displayed. He says we impart that, we preach that, but he calls it a secret and hidden wisdom of God that God decreed before the ages for our glory. What he means is that God always knew that he was going to send his son, that he would name him Jesus, that Jesus would die, that Jesus would rise, that Jesus would ascend into heaven. And he knew from the beginning of time the date of Jesus Christ's return. But what he did not do was reveal that plan in its fullest to those who walk the earth until the time came. He did tell Adam you may eat of any tree in the garden, but you may not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He did tell them that. And he did later tell them a seed from Eve is going to come and crush the seed of the serpent. So we get a little bit there, right? That's how much God revealed. What he did not tell Adam and Eve was his name will be Jesus. He will live sinlessly. He will die. He will rise. He will ascend into heaven and he will return. 
And from that day until the day that Jesus came, the prophets, the angels in heaven, everyone longed to know, what is it that God is going to do? But there wasn't anywhere they could go and find out. We had to wait for God to reveal it. We see this come back again in verse 9 when Paul quotes the Old Testament of a day that looks forward to the coming of Jesus. And it says, what no eye has seen, nor is an ear heard, nor is the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Same concept again. Until he came, no one could figure out what he was going to do. What would his name be? Who would this Messiah be? When would he come? What would he be like? We just get little flickers in the Old Testament of what he is going to be like, only as much as God gives us. Verse 10 says, God has revealed these things to us through his Spirit. God revealed the truth of the gospel to the apostles through his spirit. They saw Jesus die and rise from the dead. The spirit of God helped them understand what that meant. And now they're able to proclaim it. And in verse 16, we see again, well, who can understand the mind of the Lord to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Uh, All those together join in several other verses that we'll get to say the same thing as well. You cannot go somewhere and, and read the pattern of the bark on a tree and say, Oh, I get it now. God's son's name is Jesus, and I must put my faith in him. You can't watch the clouds go by in the sky and see the shape of one of them and say, Oh, now it makes sense. God's son's name is Jesus, and I must put my faith in him. The gospel can't be discovered by mankind. There will not be a scientific experiment that concludes the gospel of Jesus. It must be revealed by God to people. This speaks to an issue that we've talked about a little bit recently, and I'll run you through it again. The difference between what the church has called general revelation and special revelation. Uh, Anything that you could ever know, God has to reveal it, but the question is how. There are some things you can learn about the world and even about God and ourselves just by looking around and looking within, and that's called general revelation. Generally, anybody can look around and discern it if they want to. That would be things like, what is the tallest mountain that God made on the earth? We can learn that. We can go figure that out. What is the deepest crater that God made on the moon? We could go figure that out if we wanted to. Maybe we have figured that out. But there are other true things that we cannot go and search out, and we would never learn unless God told them to us. Like, how many angels are there? We don't know. God would have to tell us. How long is Jesus' beard? I don't know. We're just going to have to wait for him to show it to us. And when it comes to that difference between general and special revelation, that's special revelation, things that he would have to especially tell us if we would know them, the line there is at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, You can look around and discern a need for the gospel, but we cannot look around and discern the truth of the gospel. If you were to think of it in terms of problem and solution, we can figure out the problem without God explicitly telling us. But to learn the answer, God is going to have to tell humanity, tell us through his written word and through spiritually powerful preachers. Let me parse out how that works. We can find the problem. We cannot discover the solution. Okay. You can look around 
and tell, not just that God exists, but that he's awesome, right? Because you feel that when you see incredible things in the world. You hear your baby nephew giggle and your heart's just like, oh, there's something to this world. Uh, You see the pattern of the clouds roll by and and your heart just feels that this world is incredible. Whoever made this world is worthy of my worship. You can look at some of the pictures we have of nebula and planets and stars and say, this place is amazing. Whoever made this is worthy of me shuddering before and worship, and I must find him. So we can tell that God is amazing and worthy of our worship just by looking around. And we can look in and tell because our hearts and our consciences tell us there is definitely a such thing as real right and wrong. You murder somebody, that's wrong because right and wrong exist. And not only that, but Nobody does right all the time. We can figure that out just by looking around. This place is pretty dark. And our hearts know that those who do wrong deserve to be judged. Uh, We prove that we know that when we jump at the impulse to judge somebody when we see them doing wrong. We see somebody tweet something that is not true and is harmful, and there's an impulse to jump and tell them how wrong they are because those who do wrong deserve to be judged. It's the cry of our hearts. So we can look around and look within and tell God in heaven is worthy of our worship. There is a real right and wrong. We have not followed it. And those who do wrong and do not worship God deserve to be judged. We can figure out the problem just through general revelation. But that's as far as we can go. Then the Lord can choose to reveal, as he has, I have a solution. I have sent my son. He has lived without sin. His name is Jesus. He died to pay for sins. He rose from the dead to guarantee eternal life. He ascended up into heaven where he rules right now, and he will come again to judge everyone after raising them from the dead. And he calls everyone everywhere to turn from sin and trust him. You can't figure that out by looking at the pattern of the clouds in the sky. That's the difference between general and special revelation. And that's what Paul is getting at here. The gospel can't be discovered by men It has to be revealed by God. This is a truth that the whole Bible teaches really from start to finish, but I want to take you just to one place in the scriptures. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1? I'm going to read to you verses 10 through 12. And Peter's going to say the same thing. And this is just so you can have what Paul is saying reinforced from a different writer. He speaks of the gospel and he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating 
when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Okay, so this is the prophets to whom God revealed little flickers of the good news. Isaiah has his servant song, and other prophets have little pictures that a Messiah is going to come, but they don't have the whole picture. So they're searching and they're inquiring, who could this person be? What will he be like? The point is, they don't, they don't know the full picture of the gospel because God has not yet revealed it. Uh, verse, 11, uh, verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, and the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So what is the way that the gospel eventually was revealed? Through those apostles who, anointed by the Holy Spirit, preached the word of God to them, And this part is incredible, things into which angels long to look. The angels in heaven longed to know, Lord Almighty, what are you going to do? And they had to wait and find out along with everyone else. Because even the angels in heaven with all their vast knowledge and their beautiful view of God on high could not discern what he is going to do because you can't go discover the gospel. You can't figure the gospel out. It has to be revealed by God. It must be proclaimed. It must be read. God has to say it to us. The Lord gives us several examples of this in the text. The first is in verse 8. Now, if the idea, again, is that even the loftiest people on earth can't figure out what God is up to in the gospel, uh, verse 8 says, none of the rulers of this world understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, If Pontius Pilate had realized that the innocent man in front of him was not just another innocent man that everyone was going to forget— but was the God who made him and was going to one day return and judge him, he would not have condemned that innocent man. Uh, If Herod had known that the man he was trying was God in the flesh, he would have given him a fair hearing and not just pushed him through the system to his own condemnation. What was going on there? The loftiest people in the world could not figure out what God was doing because we cannot figure out what God is doing. The gospel can't be discovered. It has to be revealed by God. He gives us another illustration of this in verse 11 and in verse 16. He says, For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person that's in him? And so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And then down to 16, Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? The idea being, you can't read the mind of the person next to you. You don't know what they're thinking right now. You try to figure it out from looking at their face. I see some of you trying to do it right now, but you can't know because you can't read their minds. And so who would be able to read God's mind and know what he is thinking? We will never know unless he tells us. It all hinged on him choosing to reveal the good news to humanity through the men that we read about in the book of Acts, through the 12 disciples, through Jesus preaching himself, and on and on through the ages. Because it can't be discovered. It has to be revealed. Now, I'm putting an emphasis here on preaching 
There are several ways that God reveals his word. You can discern the gospel by reading the scriptures. God reveals the gospel in the scriptures. You can discern the gospel by reading a book based on the scriptures because the written word can communicate God's revelation. You can learn the gospel through a friend who tells you, and you can learn it through the preaching of the gospel. What all of those have in common is it never got known until God chose to reveal it. So before we move on to another point, let's just talk about what that means for us and for our loved ones. Um, you no doubt have friends, family members, co-workers who do not know or do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thing I really want pressed into your heart is that they must be told the gospel of Jesus. They will not figure it out on their own. The reason God has put you in their lives is to bring the good news of Jesus to them because, again, it cannot be discovered. It has to be revealed. And if you're the contact point from God and his church to that person, then you are the one who can reveal the gospel to them. Let that put some fire in you, some urgency in you. I must bring the gospel to these people because it cannot be discovered. It can only be revealed. Okay, there's our first point. Now, the question would be, what, what was God's solution to that? If you can't, none of us can figure it out, it's got to be revealed. Uh, what did God choose to do? And the answer is that God spreads his gospel primarily through preaching. Uh, this is the way that he has chosen to do it for 2,000 years now. Now, I'm going to show you this in the scripture, that God spreads his gospel primarily through preaching, but I want to show it just in our lives in the room. Uh, so get ready to raise your hands. I'm going to make you raise your hands if you've got to stretch a little bit. Go for it. Um, if you are a believer in Jesus, and when you think back to your conversion, uh, if the preached word played a meaningful role in your conversion to Jesus Christ, raise your hand. This is true of me, and I think it's probably true of most of you. Look around and see how many hands we have up. Okay, now let's put our hands down. Okay, now some of you will answer yes to this next question. Don't be afraid to. Uh, if you're a Christian and you're thinking back to your conversion and you would say, preaching did not play a significant role in my conversion, raise your hand. I'd say that's about a fifth of the hands we had before. Uh, do you see the difference? The Lord loves to use the preached word to bring people to Christ. There are other ways it can happen. Some of you read it in the scriptures and realized it. The Lord did a lot in my life through that. Some of you had a friend tell you the gospel and you came to Christ before you ever came to a church. But for 2,000 years, it has been this way. The great majority of Christians have come to Christ through the preached word. And we see this in verses 6 and 7 in our text today. Uh, what does Paul do because of the situation that we're in? He says, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age. He's referring to the gospel. We, we impart the truths of the gospel. We speak it. Verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What do the apostles do? What did they do? They preached that word because that is how God so often brings people to him. This is the trajectory we see in their lives when they're recorded in the book of Acts as well. Uh, Jesus is walking with his disciples after he's risen from the dead, 
And they're asking, okay, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? And he says, no, I'm going to do the one thing you think I don't want to do. I'm going to leave, right? And the last thing you expect Jesus to do. And he says, but when I do, wait, and the Spirit will come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so he sets up this plot line. The Spirit's going to come upon you guys. You guys are going to proclaim this message and take it out to the ends of the earth. And then that's exactly what happens. He leaves. The Spirit of God falls down upon a gathering at Pentecost, and incredible things happen. And people are declaring the mighty works of God in many different languages, but they can understand each other. I mean, the Spirit is there doing miracles, but what the Spirit does not do is declare the gospel of Jesus. Instead, a man gets up full of the Spirit, Peter, and he preaches the gospel. And then their hearts are cut. And then they cry out, what do we do? And he says, repent and believe the gospel, all of you. And 3,000 souls come to Jesus. Now, the moment the Spirit was poured out, he could have just told them all the gospel, but he's chosen to do it through his anointed preachers. And then we walk a little bit down, and there's this guy from Ethiopia going in a chariot, and Philip comes, and he meets him. And this Ethiopian man is reading Isaiah, a prophecy about Jesus, but he doesn't understand it. And Philip asks him, do you, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how could I if no one explains it to me? Right? And so Philip explains, this is about Jesus Christ. Here is what Jesus Christ did. And then the man comes to Christ, and then the man is baptized. Again, it wasn't through the reading of the Old Testament, because those prophecies weren't enough to know the whole gospel. There's enough point forward to it. When it's explained that this is about Jesus Christ, boom, then the Spirit works in that way. Two chapters later, a man named Cornelius has this dream uh, he's a Gentile. He's not yet a believer. He's about to be, though. Uh, he has a dream, and the Lord tells him, uh, find a man named Simon Peter and, and listen to what he has to say. And at the same time, roughly, Peter has a dream where he's, it's a pretty awesome dream. I'll get sidetracked if I go into how awesome that dream is. Uh, but the long and short of it is go and bring the gospel to these Gentile people. You can talk to them now. You can go in there and eat with them. And so the, the men are coming from Cornelius. They knock on the door while Peter's trying to figure out what to do about the dream. And he's like, oh, I guess I need to go with these guys. The Lord's telling me to go be with these Gentiles and proclaim the gospel. And he goes over to Cornelius's house the next day with them. Cornelius has gathered all of his friends and family and all of his people there in the house, and he says, we are ready to hear what you have to say. And then Peter declares the gospel. Now, here's an interesting thing about this. All these people are having dreams, right? God knows how to talk to people. Why didn't God just tell Cornelius what the gospel was in the dream? Could have done that. But that's not how he chooses to do it, right? He anoints instead Peter to go over because he wants his preachers proclaiming the gospel. This is the way the Lord has chosen to work in the world to spread the gospel primarily through the preaching of his word. On and on we could go, but I think you get the idea. God's answer is the preached word. And so what that means for you then is that uh, on one hand, you want to be able to proclaim the word to the people that you love in your life, right? But on the other hand, if the Lord loves to work through the preached word, like formally in public gatherings like this, that means you don't have to do that personal evangelistic work 
on your own. And in fact, many of us are failing at it because we think we have to do it on our own, right? How would I ever answer all of their questions? How would I have the courage to talk about some of these things that are hard to talk about? I I don't know as much as some of these other people know, and I'm going to stumble all over my words when I talk about it, and we get scared, and we just don't do it, right? But we're not on our own in this. The Lord gave you a church, And the Lord gave you, at this point, a phone that has access to so many great sermons and great preachers. And so, use what the Lord has given to you. If you're sharing the gospel with somebody, uh, find a good sermon and send it to them. Just send them a text and boom, hey, here's a great sermon about what we were talking about the other day. Or bring them to church and let them hear the preached word of God. You don't have to do this on your own. You do need to know the gospel well enough to proclaim it to people, but you don't, at the end of the day, have to do it on your own. No, the Lord loves to work through preaching. Get them in the hearing of good preaching and see if that doubles down the power of your own efforts to proclaim the gospel to your friends. So so there's the first question. Why preaching in the first place? Because the gospel can't be discovered. It's got to be revealed by God. And because the way he's chosen primarily to reveal it and save people is through the preached word. And so that's why we keep doing this preaching thing. Now for the question we might be quicker to ask. I don't think many in this room have really asked why preaching. We just like to hear good preaching. But second question we might really earnestly ask, why does that preaching have to have supernatural power? Why can't it just be a good sermon? And the reason is in verses 12 to 14. Uh, He says there, Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. And we impart it in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths for those who are spiritual. And then he says the flip side, the natural person doesn't accept these things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, for he's not able to understand them, for he is spiritually discerned. And so what he's saying there is that without the touch of the Holy Spirit, we, we can't receive the gospel. The last point today is without the Spirit, we cannot receive the gospel. There are so many ways that God calls his people and calls others to come to him But there is only one that works, and that is when he shows up. My Sunday school class is seeing this in Job right now. Uh, Job's three friends give him bad advice, and he begins to judge God and challenge God, and he won't repent of it. He just gets harder and harder in his heart. And their bad advice does not help them or help him. Then a young man named Elihu gives what he claims is inspired by God advice, and I think he's right. He gives him good calling, and he calls Job to repent of challenging God and judging God, and Job still won't do it. Even a faithful witness and messenger isn't enough to soften Job's heart. And then the Lord shows up, and he speaks to Job, and Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now I see you, and therefore I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. It took the Lord showing up for his heart to soften. The same thing happens with the preaching of the word. Jesus told the apostles, 
wait until the Spirit comes upon you, and then start proclaiming the gospel. And everywhere you go, when you see in that book the preaching of the Word, they always get up full of the Spirit, or their face shines because they're full of the Spirit. It takes the touch of God on preaching to soften hearts, or it never works. And so we deduce from that that without the Spirit working, we aren't able to receive the gospel. Maybe the plainest place you see this is in verse 14. The natural person, that's what we naturally are, what you were before you came to Christ, how you were born, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. If the Lord had left you in the state that you were born in forever, you would have thought the gospel was dumb forever. But to those who are spiritual, those that have the Spirit and dwell in them and change them and give them new hearts and touch them in that way. Oh, they open their eyes. They say, oh, I get it. I understand it. And I want this Lord. And so Paul makes that distinction between the two. Maybe the simplest way to get this is that you can hear it over and over again, but it won't click unless the Lord flips the switch and turns the lights on. It takes him to do that. I was doing a new member interview a number of years ago uh, for a married couple that was uh, joining a church that I was part of. And the young man was giving his testimony. They were married for like a year or so. And he said, uh, I grew up in church, um, but I never believed the gospel, never really understood it. Um, And then when I was in college, you know, being a church guy, I figured I needed to find a nice church girl and and try to marry her. And so, you know, here she is, points to his wife. And he said, I was, you know, not really even realizing that I wasn't a believer. Uh, I went to visit her family one weekend and went to church with her and heard the gospel while I was sitting right next to then the girl I was dating uh, and repented of my sins and, and believed in it like it just clicked. Um, and so we got to talk in, and I just love hearing people's stories, and I always ask probably too many questions. And so, so I asked, well, do you think the church you grew up in preached the gospel? I mean, you went there your whole childhood. Um, you know, a lot of churches that just don't preach it. And he said, no. Um, when I think back, when I think of the phrases I heard over and over again, the words I understand now, the verses I understand in the scriptures, yeah, I think they preached the gospel. I, I just didn't get it until that day for some reason. And for many of us, that's our story. I heard the gospel over and over again as a boy, but I didn't get it until I was 12, and I heard it one day at a summer camp. And many of us would say the same things. Well, why is it like that? Why is it possible to hear it and for it to just not register, for the seed to just not take? Well, soils are different, the Lord said. And without the Spirit indwelling in the heart, giving us a new heart, giving us new life, uh, we just miss it and don't get it. This is something the scripture teaches all over. The, the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel especially, say a day is coming when I will give you a new heart. I will remove the stony heart from your chest and put a heart of flesh in its place. I will put my spirit in you and then you will obey my ways. It takes the work of the spirit of God. Jesus says to Nicodemus, A man who is very righteous knows the scriptures. He says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, right? It takes a new birth to see and understand these things. There's a story of a rich man and Lazarus, and they both die, and they go to to different sides of the afterlife. 
And the rich man, having done evil deeds in his life, is now being judged for them. And he's crying out. And he cries out for relief. And he hears, no, no, you won't get any relief. Remember what your life was like. And he says, will you at least let me go and tell my brothers that this stuff is real and they need to repent? And what he hears is, they didn't listen to Moses and they didn't listen to the prophets. A man risen from the dead proclaiming to them, is not going to be enough. They won't believe you either, even if you rise from the dead. Now there's a picture of how hard our hearts really are, right? Even if someone rose back from the dead and got in this pulpit and you knew he was dead and he was alive and he proclaimed the gospel, that alone, without the Spirit working, wouldn't be enough to see one conversion. You want to hear maybe the most heretical-sounding thing that I've ever told you, If Jesus Christ were here in the flesh and he were standing right there in that pulpit proclaiming the gospel, and that were it, the Spirit weren't working alongside him, that would not be enough to lead to one conversion. You don't believe me? Think in the gospels of the times that he preached and was rejected. How many times did he tell his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise. And how did they respond? No, certainly that will never happen to you, Lord. Yeah, the flesh of Jesus Christ looking you in the eyes, telling you the truth, even that isn't enough. What it takes is the hand of God through his spirit changing the heart, and then we say, I believe. So, Can you see why it is so important for us to plead and pray that God would put his spirit upon our worship services? If a resurrected man preaching isn't enough, if the flesh of Jesus Christ preaching wouldn't be enough, you know for sure that your pastor's voice is not going to be enough. No, we need the spirit working powerfully as we preach. And so what I want to ask of each of you, what I need from each of you is, first of all, dedicate yourselves to praying that the Lord will work here when we meet like this. That's what we're depending on, so let's ask him to do it. This is why we have every Wednesday at 9 o'clock, we have a prayer meeting in my office, and we just pray that the Spirit will work powerfully in our church. Uh, Many months of the year, on the third Sunday of the month, we'll have lunch and we'll pray together because we believe we need this. Our deacons are beginning now to gather at 8.30 every Sunday morning to pray for this worship service, that the Spirit would work powerfully in Sunday school and here. And many of us have committed every day to waking up and opening our scriptures and praying Lord, would you move powerfully with your spirit in our worship services? This is what we need. And I want to ask you, would you join? Would you commit to every day in your prayer times, praying that the spirit would anoint the preaching of the word in this pulpit? If we all go and ask him, oh, what we might see. That's one thing we need from you. Here's the other thing we need. I need you to guard the preaching of the gospel in this pulpit for a couple reasons. One, I will not preach here 52 Sundays this year. At some point, somebody else is going to preach, so I'm not always in control of what goes on up here, and so we just need to guard that the gospel itself is preached. I need your accountability because I make mistakes and I miss things sometimes. And if I go a week without calling you to put your faith in Jesus Christ, as we talked about earlier in this message, well, I need to be reminded of that. Uh, and probably most 
sharpest in my heart of all is that one day I'm going to die and I'm going to stop preaching the gospel here. And the burden will fall back on you guys to make sure that what is preached in this pulpit is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what I mean there is that it's not all up to the pastor. There are leaders in the church. We all do this together. Uh, Every church has what we often call an old guard. Have you ever heard the phrase the old guard, right? This is the the people who have been in the church for a long time. Everybody trusts them. Everybody knows them. If they're against something, it's probably not going to happen. Every church has people like this. And I believe the Lord sets it up that way on purpose. Uh, You can discern the health of a church by asking one question. What is the old guard guarding? And there's one correct answer. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Those of you who have the trust of the congregation, we don't need you to guard your favorite style of music. That's not what you're here to guard, right? We don't need you to guard the color of the walls or the look of the building or whether the new sign looks right. Uh, What we need of you desperately is guard the preaching of the gospel in this place. As the Lord says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So pray that the Lord would work in the spirit and in power and guard the preaching of the gospel. If we do that, we have every reason to expect that the Lord will keep working, we will keep seeing conversions, and perhaps the day will come when he will pour his spirit out and we will see a mighty movement of the Lord. Let's respond to this by going to him right now and pleading for that very thing. Let's pray.